Um, Father, thank you for this time that you've set apart. Thank you for your word, God, through which you speak to us. God, as we open your word, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear, God, and receive what you would have to say today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are, we've made it to Acts 22. Last two weeks, Nick Hill has been uh, walking us through the book of Acts. He did a fantastic job. I was able to be here uh, last week just listening and being a part of the church as he continued the series on. And so um, we're going to be uh, looking at chapter 22 and then starting 23 today. We'll finish up 23 next week, 24 the week after that. And then it'll be just the home stretch to finish out the book of Acts. Um, what I want to do is just kind of start with a couple of reminders um, in case you're visiting or you've been, you've been out. Um, so the, the, the title for this sermon series, the book of Acts, is The Unstoppable Church. That is a reminder to us that the church that we are reading about was not the idea of man. It wasn't something that was ever um, in question of whether or not it was going to succeed or fail. Um, Jesus himself in the Gospels said that he was going to establish his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. It would be an unstoppable church. And then after his resurrection, he tells his disciples to go make disciples of the nations in order to build the church. The book of Acts is just the story of that happening, the unfolding of the unstoppable church. Now, it's so important for us week in, week out to, to be reminded that solid rock church is in the lineage of the book of Acts. Any Christian church on the face of the earth, regardless of denomination, uh, is in that lineage. We are here today because the gospel went out, people were saved, the church was established, and so therefore we're here today as that has continued on. So we are reminded that Solid Rock is a part of the Unstoppable Church movement. And again, this is not our idea. It's not guided by our own wisdom or fueled by our own strength. When we say unstoppable, what we're talking about is the work God and God alone is doing in and through this church, right? Because we are fallible people. We bring our messes to the equations, which, which just further glorifies God's amazing power that despite us, the church continues to move forward. Now, in the early church, there was a lot of persecution. There was a lot of attempts informally and formally uh, by the Roman government and by the Jewish authorities to stamp out and stop the church. And as we get to chapters 17, 18, through the remainder of the book of Acts, the apostle Paul is one of the, the primary characters being written about. And, uh, and so as we land today, we're going to see uh, that Paul is going to finish kind of his speech before the Jewish leaders and before the Roman authorities there in Jerusalem and getting ready to be shipped off to Rome. But we have to keep in mind, this Paul that we're reading about began as a terrorist against the church. He began as one leading the angry mob to stamp out and stop the church. God miraculously and gracefully saved Paul, and now he's a leading missionary that we're reading about. We'll pick this up in Acts 22, uh, starting in verse 22. This is right where Nick left off last week. We read this. So Paul has been speaking in front of, uh, he's in chains, he's been beaten, he's speaking in front of the Jews and the Roman authorities, and we read this. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, 
the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. And so this is a moment where the pressure is really beginning to heat up for Paul. They've already beaten him. He's already been uh, under immense persecution and suffering. And now they're saying, in order to get the truth out of Paul, let's string him up and beat him until he tells us what we want to hear. Now, I want to just start with a little background. So Paul began as a terrorist in Acts, the end of Acts 7, Acts 8. But in Acts chapter 9 is where God saves Paul, and Nick talked about it last week, how God sent a messenger to Paul uh, to go to Paul. Um, Paul was struck blind there on the road, and a messenger was sent to Paul to essentially mediate and lead Paul to faith in Christ. The messenger, however, was hesitant. Why? Because he knew that Paul was leading the angry mob and the persecution. And so he's like, God, are you sure this is what you want me to do? And God says, yes, I want you to go and speak to Paul. We're reminded in Acts 9 of one of the things that God told Paul. The Lord said to him, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Let's stop for just a minute. Paul is a terrorist, and Jesus is saying, And he's also my chosen instrument. It's a pretty big contrast, isn't it? That's not Jesus saying, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to extend some patience and grace towards Paul, and I'll go ahead and let him into heaven. Jesus is saying, he's my chosen instrument to do something for the kingdom. I know right now he's expending his energy and his efforts to try to bring this church down, but he's actually, what he doesn't know and what you don't know is he's my chosen instrument. Chosen to do what? He says, chosen to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's a prophetic word from Jesus, and we're seeing that play out now in Acts 21, 22, 23, 24. Not only that, verse 16 of Acts 9, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. These things were spoken before Paul was converted, right? That he is a chosen instrument. He would proclaim the name of Jesus before Gentiles, before kings, before the Jewish leaders. Not only that, he would suffer for the sake of Christ. And so now we've got the guy who was leading the angry mob, chief terrorist against the church, is now a missionary in chains speaking to the angry mob that he used to lead. Think about that, right? He's now subject to the persecution that he helped start. And so here he is now in Jerusalem. Now keep in mind, in Acts 20, just a few weeks ago, the Holy Spirit had already revealed this to Paul. He knew it was coming. Do you remember what he said to the Ephesian elders uh, before he set sail on that final journey to Jerusalem? In Acts 20, verse 22, he says, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul knew that before he ever got to Jerusalem, that this is what was going to happen. Verse 24, of, again in Acts 20, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course 
and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. That's what my life is about now. And now behold, I know none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul's pretty certain he's going to Jerusalem and death was awaiting him. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For Why? Because I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And that was Acts 20, two chapters back. Paul knew this was happening. From the moment he was saved, he knew he was destined to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to kings, to the Jews, the children of Israel. Uh, he also knew he was destined to suffer. And as he got closer and closer to the point of death, that revelation of how he would die became more and more clear. He knew he was going to be imprisoned and beaten and ultimately put to death for the sake of Christ. Now, here we are in Acts 22. He's in captivity. And, uh, and when we left off last week, he was permitted to speak to the children of Israel. And so they're listening to him speak. But in verse 22, what we read is this. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices. So something fired up the angry mob. Something that Paul said got them all riled up again, and they weren't listening to him anymore. So it's so important to take a step back and go, what was the last thing he said? And why did that infuriate the crowd? Well, just before that, in verse 21, this is what Paul tells the crowd, that Jesus said to him, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. There was one word in that verse that set them off, and it was the word Gentile. Now, at this point, Paul is arrested on two charges. One, for preaching against the customs of Moses, or the law and the, the ultimately the religious system of the Jews. Secondly, he was accused of taking a Gentile into the temple. Now, we're going to talk today a little bit more in detail why that's such a big deal. But in summary, uh, on two accounts, that's a big deal. One, for the Jews, they worked really hard to maintain an idea of cleanliness in life. They had a whole set of rituals for how to get clean if you were dirty. Dirtiness came from sin. It also came from coming in contact with, like, dead things or Gentiles. And so on one hand, this was a cleanliness issue. You just brought a, a Gentile into the place that we go to get clean from having touched the Gentile. But I think a deeper issue is this. Ultimately, what was happening is their entire system was just crumbling before them. If Jews are allowed into the temple, everything we hold dear and true isn't dear or true anymore. You're, you're, you're going against everything that matters to us. And we're seeing this anger, right, well up now. And so when he says, yeah, God told me I was going to be headed to preach to the Gentiles, and he said that word, boom, they get angry again. That's why, that's why he needs to die. That's why he needs to be put to death right there. And so the angry mob fires up again. Now, let's pick this back up in 25. Keep in mind, they're talking about beating him until he gives up or says what he wants them, what they want him to say. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, 
Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and he said to him, What are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Let me give you just a little bit of commentary here to fully understand what's happening. So let's start with uh, the beating that was about to happen. So this was a pretty traditional Roman beating, a flogging. Uh, they would use this instrument, this whip-like instrument called the, the, the scourge or um, the cat of nine tails. It had several different nicknames. It was this Roman instrument of torture. And essentially it was, you've probably seen it maybe depicted in movies or television shows, kind of a short-handled whip that had these uh, strips of leather coming off. Uh, usually it was nine strips of leather. That's why they called the cat of nine tails. It was called the cat because at the end of each strip had a, a sharp piece of glass or a, a sharp piece of steel or like flint stone at the end. And so what they would do is they would stretch out, which we just read about, the prisoner in such a way that they couldn't move. And then they would take this whip, the scourge, and they would whip it across the back of the, the person being tortured. And, every, and, and so it would come across and usually kind of begin to stick into the rib cage, these, these sharp pieces of glass. But instead of removing it gently, of course, they would rip it back across. Now, it was held as a tradition that if a person was scourged, 40 times, it would be a death sentence. So oftentimes, they would, they would whip this person 39 times, symbolizing, we just want to take you to the brink of death and not kill you. Now, Jesus himself was tortured this way before he went, before he carried his cross, and before he was crucified. And so they're about to do the same thing to Paul. But you notice that it got interrupted by one little detail, that Paul was Roman citizen. Now, there are only two ways you could become or be a Roman citizen. Roman citizenship, it wasn't like here in the U.S. where pretty much everybody who's born here is a Roman citizen. Uh, so, in, so if you were born in Rome, that didn't automatically make you a Roman citizen. Or right, if you were a descendant of a Roman citizen, it didn't automatically make you a Roman citizen. Two ways. One, you had to be by birth, by noble birth, so at some point in your lineage, somebody in your family became a Roman citizen. They could pass that on to you. Um, and it was a great privilege of, of, right, of just high respect. The other way is you could purchase it. You could buy it. That's what this guy's saying. So the tribune is there. He says to Paul, are you a Roman citizen? Paul said, yes. And the tribune says, what? Well, my Roman citizenship was pretty expensive, Right? I had to pay for mine with a lot of money. And Paul said what to him? Yeah, but I got mine by birth. Which means that more than likely, like Paul's father or grandfather had spent a lot of money to purchase Roman citizenship and had passed it down to Paul. Here's why that matters. If you were a Roman citizen, a person of high privilege, you could not be tortured, bound, or imprisoned without due process. Okay? So think about it. He's already been arrested and beaten, and they're about to torture him again as a Roman citizen. Now, here's the thing. If you, if you did 
punish a Roman citizen who was not condemned, the person who was carrying out the torture could be put to death. That's how serious they took this. Secondly, if the person being tortured said, I'm a Roman citizen, and you backed off, but they really weren't, death sentence immediately. So somebody's guilty of death right now in this moment. That's why they're afraid, and they begin to back off. Right? So they've got him all stretched out. The tribune is there. They're getting ready to scourge him and to beat him until he gives up the the information. Paul said, oh, just one detail. Is it lawful for you to do this to a Roman citizen? And everything shuts down, right? You can just kind of hear the music stop. Wait a second. You're a Roman citizen? And everybody begins to back away. Now, we'll pick this back up in verse 30. This is where I believe we're getting to kind of the heart of this moment. Verse 30. On the next, but on the next day. So they took him back to his barracks on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews. He, this, the he here is the tribune. He unbound him, Paul, and commanded that the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So you get the scene. So the tribune is like, I got to get to the bottom of this. I need to bring in the accusers. Paul's a Roman citizen. I need to give him a seat at the table. We're going to figure this thing out, sit down and figure out what's going on. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him. Oh, well, let me back up. Sorry, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul says something. He said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Then here's the reaction of the high priest. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. So they punched Paul. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. So what Paul does now is he actually uses um, a metaphor that Jesus uses uh, in dealing with religious leaders to point out their hypocrisy. Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. They looked good on on the outside. They were whitewashed and clean, but on the inside, they were dead. So Paul's kind of pulling that same idea into this conversation, and he's revealing the hypocrisy now of the Jewish religious leaders by calling them whitewashed. And he says, well, here's the thing. You just punched me. You have me arrested right now, and I've done nothing wrong. You just broke the law. Who's the one who's guilty here, me or you? I'm standing here before God with a clear conscience. I want to talk about that for just a minute. There are two reasons why Paul is standing before God with a clear conscience. Now, he's not standing before them with a clear conscience, right? They're accusing him. But what Paul is saying is that it doesn't matter what you accuse me of. Before our holy God, I stand blameless. You're guilty. You arrested me, you beat me, you just punched me in the face. You've broken the law several times. If anything, I could push, I could persecute you. I could put you in chains. You whitewashed people. 
religious facade. You look good on the outside. You got everybody here convinced that you're these holy, righteous men, right? But on the inside, you're dead. You're hypocrites. You're false. I stand before you, or I stand before God, blameless or with a good conscience. First reason that Paul can say that, remember he was a terrorist, right? He killed, put Christians to death. How can somebody who puts Christians to death stand before God with a good conscience, with a peace of mind, with a sense of confidence that, that, that God loves me and accepts me? Because Paul had encountered the grace of Jesus. That's how powerful the grace of Jesus is. There's no other explanation. Paul didn't clear his conscience by any other means, right? Suffering, his preaching, his compassion for people, nothing Paul did cleared his conscience. It was solely and purely the remarkable grace of Jesus. That's what cleansed Paul of his sins, including putting Christians to death. Does that not maybe overwhelm you a little bit that God's grace is that amazing? Because we tend to think about that from our own perspective, and we think, well, I haven't, I haven't gone that far, right? I mean, God forgives us of our sins, and yeah, but some people, right? How about the, the terrorists who took over the planes at 9-11? This is the kind of character we're dealing with here, standing before God's presence with a good conscience. How? Because of the remarkable grace of Jesus, because Paul had cried out to Jesus and said, please forgive me of my sins, and Jesus cleansed him. Second reason Paul is standing before God with a good conscience is because he had faithfully lived out the mission. He had boldly proclaimed without withholding anything from the people in every town he went to, he lived his life on mission. He boldly proclaimed the death and resurrection of Jesus, even when it cost him dearly. And so he was standing with a good conscience. It reminds me of um, one of my favorite uh, moments in Martin Luther's life and ministry. If you know who Martin Luther was, a significant part of the Reformation. I'm not talking about Martin Luther King Jr., totally different movement several hundred years ago. Um, he was called to appear before the Diet of Worms, which that alone is just an interesting name. Uh, and so the diet was there, and they were, they were questioning him and interrogating him. And the main thing that they had issue with was his teaching on uh, sola fide, faith alone, that we are saved by faith alone. You can't add anything to it. You can't put anything with it. And Luther was a huge fan of the Apostle Paul. Matter of fact, um, one of the first works that uh, Martin Luther translated was, was uh, the book of Romans that Paul wrote. And what, Paul, what Luther said about the book of Romans is, um, I lay hold of Paul and I beat him until he gave up the answers. That was a figurative expression of how, how deeply Martin Luther studied the book of Romans. And from the, gospel and f the gospels and from the teachings of Paul, Luther had uh, come to the conclusion that, listen, the Catholic church has added way too much to the gospel. We are saved by faith alone. Works come after that. Works don't get you saved. They don't put you in favor with God, whether it's works by baptism or works by serving the poor. Grace alone, sola fide. So the Diet of Worms was questioning Martin Luther on this, and they ultimately called him to recant of that teaching. And here's what Martin Luther said. 
He said, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I cannot recant. For my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. There's a similar moment in Martin Luther's life to what Paul is doing here as he stands before them. He has preached the gospel and he said, listen, guys, you do what you want with me, but I'm standing here before God with a, with a good conscience. That's what matters to me. And so he finishes up his speech here uh, with um, a discussion about the resurrection, which was a really, I think Paul knew what he was doing. Because see, not only was he uh, um, under Roman authority here right now in his imprisonment, but his accusers were the Jewish leaders. And the Jewish leaders were divided into two groups of people who couldn't agree on certain theological things, in particular, the resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees believed that the resurrection was, was real and it was possible. The Sadducees did not believe that the resurrection was real. So what Paul does is after he finishes this little statement, he throws out this gold nugget basically and says, you guys are persecuting me because I preached the, uh, I preached the gospel of Jesus uh, and the resurrection. Boom, and he just steps back and then the Sadducees and Pharisees just have at one another. The Sadducees, oh, the resurrection is not even real. And the Pharisees are like, what are you talking about? The resurrection is real. And so now they're just debating. I just see Paul just kind of sitting back, just watching it all happen. Just, just un, and it begins to get real chaotic. And now everybody's not only right, mad at, at Paul, they're angry at each other. And it just starts to get really out of, out of hand. So what I want to do now is I want to land in verse, verses 9 through 11 of chapter 23. So after the Sadducees and Pharisees started going after it about the resurre resurrection, verse 9 then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. <laughs> we find nothing wrong in this man. What if an angel, a spirit, or an angel spoke to him? They just flip sides here. Talk about confusion and chaos, right? So now the Pharisees are going out with the Sadducees and you guys don't believe in the resurrection. He's pre preaching the resurrection. You know what? We're just going to be on Paul. So we find nothing wrong with this man. Of course, the, the Roman tribune who has no real Jewish background is kind of confused. And he doesn't know what the whole mess is all about. Verse 10, and then the dissension became violent. The tribune afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, in moments of desperation, in moments of, of hardship and trial and suffering, we cry out to Jesus. This isn't exactly what we're looking for, is it? We like the take courage part. Take courage because this will soon be over. Take courage because this will soon be behind you and better days are coming. Take courage because I'm going to step in. I'm going to fix this. Isn't that what we want, want from Jesus? 
more. And, but what does Jesus do? He steps in and Paul, take courage. Why? Because I'm not done with you yet. We're going to take this show to Rome. We're going to take this gospel message to Rome. Essentially, what has happened to you here in Jerusalem, we're going to take this to Rome and it's going to happen all over again. Now, Paul knows this is more than likely his last big voyage. He's not going to make it out of Rome. And Jesus steps in and says, take courage, Paul. Take courage. Not only am I still with you, your mission isn't done yet. We've got more work to do. Now, try to imagine for a moment you're in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a situation of desperation and heartache, maybe even just severe suffering. You cry out to Jesus, and his response to you is, take courage, my child, because I'm not done with you yet. This is all part of the mission. Remember where Paul's salvation started? Paul, you're going to preach. You're going to suffer. Take courage, Paul. We're not done yet. I want to think for a minute about some application from what we're reading today. As it relates to the unstoppable church, let me just throw out a rhetorical question to us all. Do you believe what Jesus said about his church, that it truly is unstoppable? And don't, don't necessarily rush to an answer there. We think about the world we live in today, the, 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 the rapid shifting culture that we're in today towards liberalism, away from an, any idea of absolute truth, truth, regardless what religion it is. It's not just anti-Christianity, it's anti-absolute truth of any form. We see this rapid culture shift. We're beginning to see persecution begin to heat up for the church. Uh, we're beginning to see that and feel that even as a church here with IRS regulation and all the things we have to do uh, for, you know, to protect ourselves in audits. Like we're already feeling the weight and the persecution of the federal government in a very subtle way. Nothing compared to this, right? So in the midst of that, don't we some, aren't we sometimes um, tempted, right, to wonder what's going on? How bad is this going to get? Jesus, come fix this. Come change this. Let's shift it back. And, and we pray for those things, but I hear Jesus saying all the more to us, hey, take courage. I'm not done with you yet. And I, and I read the story of Paul and ultimately the story of the church, and I'm reminded, oh, this is an unstoppable movement of God. That's why. That's why at Solid Rock Church, with all my imperfections and, and, and faults as a leader, why this church hasn't crumbled yet. Not because I'm a great leader, but because Jesus is doing something here. Right? That's why so many amazing things are happening in and through our church. Don't be offended by this. It's not because of how awesome you are. Right? If it's up to us, it is a very stoppable thing. It would have died in its tracks a long time ago. Right? But do we, do we truly believe that? That what you and I are sitting right here participating in is an unstoppable movement of God. And here's the follow-up. What does the life look like of a person who says Yes. What does the life look like of a person who says, yes, I believe that what we are a part of as a church is something unstoppable? 
then no longer do we see missions as a trip we take on or some special event we do a couple times a year. It becomes a way of life. Right? And then we, like Paul, are able to say, I stand before God with a good conscience. Why? Because of his amazing grace. He forgave me of my sins. And because of his Holy Spirit guiding, directing, empowering me, I live the mission. I stand before God with a good conscience. I want to share just one little short story, and then I'm going to talk about a song we're about to sing. Um, one, one of the things that I do sometimes when I'm driving in and out of these neighborhoods, like if I'm not in a huge hurry, which these days happens less and less, if I've got a few more minutes before my next destination and I don't want to get there too early, I'll just you know, drive through these neighborhoods around the church and just pray. And sometimes people are outside if it's a Saturday or if it's in the evening and see people you don't know and pray for them. And I was doing that this past week um, on Tuesday. I was driving through the neighborhoods that are south and east of the church. Um, along the park, there's a park that um, starts at Chapel Creek and goes all the way over. Um, to whatever the next um, little boulevard is there. And uh, I was just driving through praying, and God just overwhelmed me with this thought that he has called Solid Rock to this unstoppable mission. And I just had this vision of, like, like the people that live in those neighborhoods, like every other house, um, like all of a sudden I knew them because they came to church here. Like house after house, I just, I began to pray that. Like just, God, would you bring this family to our church? And after like two blocks of that, um, I began to think, well, where are we going to put all these people? And God spoke to me and said, hey, don't, that's not what you need to be worrying about. You need to be worrying about living the mission in your everyday life. When you pull into your driveway, look and see if your neighbor's outside. And if so, don't do what you want to do. Grab all your stuff and walk in the house and rest. Go walk across the street and say something. Right? When you go to Starbucks and you're there talking to the barista, interact with them. Try to start a conversation. They may not have time. They may not want to talk to you, but be intentional. When you go to the doctor and you're sitting out in the waiting room, right? Rather than being bitter and frustrated that your appointment was 20 minutes ago and you're still sitting there and you've already read the Highlights magazine, start a conversation with somebody else who's sitting there frustrated that they're not in the doctor. You get what I'm saying? Your everyday life. I think if we truly get to a place as a church where we believe that what God is doing here is unstoppable, it'll, it'll permeate, permeate everything. We, everything we do will be about that mission. Everything. And each one of us will be so excited about what God does in Monday through Saturday. We can't wait to get back here on Sunday and see who shows up and, and to share stories about what God has done throughout the week. And just to see, like what we do on Sunday should be the exclamation point on the end of the week. This isn't the mission we do here. This is the exclamation point of the mission where we celebrate what God has done and what he's about to do. Are you beginning to see that vision? We're about to sing a song. Uh, we haven't sang it in a while. I love this song. Um, and the bridge of the song um, says this, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Think about that line. That means, right, my trust doesn't have a boundary where I trust you up to a certain point and then I stop trusting you. Right? I, I hit 
the, the border, and then you call me to keep going. I keep going. I, you, I, I walk up to that place in the conversation where I'm comfortable talking, and then you call me to go a step further, and I go the step further. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wonder, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. Does that not sound like Paul here? Right? I'm going to challenge us to do something today. When we get to that place in the song in a few minutes, I'm going to challenge you, along with myself, to make that our heartfelt, earnest prayer. Personally. Begin to imagine what your life would look like if you were willing to follow Christ's lead in your life beyond the borders, beyond what's comfortable or familiar, to live the mission wholeheartedly in every aspect wherever God should lead you. Now, it's up to you whether or not you want to do that, okay? I'm asking you to pray that prayer with me this morning. Well, let's, let's go before the Lord as we invite the worship team back up and get ready to respond. Um, Father, this morning, I want to confess that the issue with trust has nothing to do with you. God, it's not that you aren't trustworthy. God, it's that we are hesitant to trust. We are hesitant to let go of control. And Father, this morning, I sense that you're calling us to this place as a church where we are truly willing to follow your lead beyond what makes sense, beyond what is comfortable, to take us further than we've ever been. God, each one of us here right now, God, to live our lives on mission this week, that we would come back next Sunday and stand and proclaim together as one church that we stand before you, O holy God, with a good conscience. So God, now would you do that work in us that is required, God, that we could walk out of here today ready to live the mission. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus.